All right, we are in Genesis chapter 3. This morning is where we're going to be. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. Hey, I just want to pause real quick. We, We don't do this a ton in regards to like pointing to people who are on stage a bunch and asking you to thank them, but uh, I do want to say, hey, if you get a chance to see somebody from the band, uh, they and also our sound team, James, uh, Stevens, uh, Francie, uh, Joel, Avery, Derek, Ed, Sandy, Zach, uh, these folks have put a ton of time in the last couple of weeks, both getting ready for last night, getting ready for Christmas Eve. Uh, they're putting a lot of time in. So while you woke up this morning and saw that it was cruddy, foggy weather again, and you turned back over and went back to sleep for another 30 minutes, they got up and came right back down to church this morning after um, leading us in worship last night. And so just want to say I'm really grateful for them. They put a ton of time, uh, and there's so many things uh, in our, around our church, and to make sure that we can we remove barriers uh, to you being able to worship, and also to also lead you into the presence of God uh, in worship. So let's get to God's word. Genesis chapter three, verses one through nine is where we are. Here's what God's word says: Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, and He said to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? This sends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But may the word of our God stand forever. Well, in the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we have act 1 of the whole story of the Bible. That's what we've been um, looking at, or what we are looking at for this Christmas Advent season, that we introduced this series last week by talking about the arc uh, of the story, the narrative of the Bible, and it has four chapters to it, four chapters to the narrative of the Bible, and it goes this way, first, creation, second, the fall, third, redemption, that's the third chapter, and then fourth is restoration or glorification, and what we saw last week, we saw the opening chapter, creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he made the whole creation, and he called it good. And he made man and woman in his image, and he walked with them, and he talked with them, and they had dwelled with God in intimacy, and he said, it is so, so very good. Man and woman walked with God and with one another, and they were naked, and they were unashamed, we read, and creation was a paradise. It was so, so good. That's act one. Or chapter one of the story of the Bible. 
Well, it was shortly before noon in one of the premier hotels in downtown Atlanta, the Marriott Marquis, perhaps you've been in it yourself. It's 47 stories of a spiraling interior. And in the middle of this beautiful hotel with its grand marble floors at the bottom, it is up in the middle of it is a glass elevator. So you can ride the glass elevator in the middle of the Marriott Marquis and have this incredible view of the hotel. And it goes up and up and up. And it was at the PCA MTW Missions Conference. In the midst of this day, on this particular Saturday, that a young woman came in off the street, took an elevator to the top floor, and she stepped out onto the ledge. And she fell 47 floors. Covenant College students were there, and they were imploring her to get down. And yet she jumped anyways. It was 12 noon on any given Saturday. You see, it was very good, but it isn't anymore. What happened to us and what happened to the human race? We can open up the grand annals of history. We can close our eyes. We can open the book of human history, and we can put our finger down at any place, and there we will find things going on and happening that are accounted for there that would make us go, what happened to us? Let's just take one. So in the midst of World War I and the chaos of the early years of that war, the world was distracted and unable to aid often those who were vulnerable. And the Turks thought to themselves, well, how can we use this time well? And they said, we know. We've never really liked the Armenian people living in our midst. And so what did they do? They slaughtered a million Armenians over the course of the next couple of years. What happened to us? Well, that's on the grand scale, but where we probably feel it even more is actually when it gets really small and really personal. When we look at the world around us or we look down at ourselves and we go, what happened to me? I remember failing a test in early high school. I wasn't a perfect student, but I had never failed a test before. And my reaction was so over the top to this failure. I remember walking in my room and screaming at the top of my lungs, yelling and beating my fist against my bed. And then I literally picked up my full mattress and slung it across my room, taking everything off of my dressers and desk, shattering glass, scattering items and paper all over the place. And I remember standing there panting and stunned, shocked myself into sobriety thinking, what the heck is wrong with me? What happened to me? Well, Genesis 3 gives us an idea of what happened to us. We're looking at the Bible and the story of the Bible in this series, and we want to see Christmas in view of the larger story and its place within that story. Last week, we looked at Act 1, and in Act 1, we're introduced to the characters and to the context let me give you a picture of this, of a, the most rudimentary understanding of how narratives flow uh, is this right here. It's a, kind of a four or five part act. We have the exposition or what's often called the introduction. That's what we got last week with the creation. We're introduced to the characters and to the setting. 
And then we see what's the next thing. It's called an inciting incident. It's where something goes wrong in which the heroine and the hero, the two romantic lovers, something enters in to cause a rift and a break in the relationship, right? Many of you are watching these kind of shows right now. They're on Hallmark all the time, right? When the, when the jaded uh, detective goes to the small village in Vermont and she runs into that old lost high school lover, but then she finds out she finds out something unsavory about him. And what happens is then there's a rising action. The tension builds and builds and builds until a climax in which something breaks. And let me tell you where we are this morning is at the inciting incident. That's where we're at. And the inciting incident that creates, that big rises and creates this tension in the story of the Bible is what we have come to know simply as the fall. And you have to understand the fall because it explains so much about why we do what we do and why we live the way we live. It explains so much of what is wrong with us and what is wrong with our world. It's what is wrong with our relationships and our marriages and gives context to why we so desperately, so desperately need a savior to enter into the story. And so what happened at the fall? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Four things we're going to see this morning is what happened at the fall. Here's the first. The account of the fall tells us that there is a lie we believed. What's it say in verse 1? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other. What we see here and what we understand from the rest of the Bible is that the evil one took on the form. In other words, what we see is the evil one took on flesh. And he dwelt among us. And he came and he lied. And so he is called the father of lies. And he begins to lie to man and to woman about, particularly about what? About God. And he, his lie has three components to it. First is he lies about the truthfulness of God. Verse three, or chapter one of, uh, chapter, verse one of chapter three, he says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. You see what he does? He twists God's word. Now God has said, you must not eat of one tree. And the evil one comes in and says, has he not said you can, cannot eat of any tree? Well, Eve corrects him, sort of. But then she has a, a fault of her own. She adds to God's word. Eve says, well, God said if we eat of the tree or then she, what does she add? She says, or touch it, then we will die. Then the servant downright contradicts God in verse 4. You saw it there on the screen just a second ago. Verse 4 says, surely you won't die. What is the first thing that the tempter calls into question? He calls into question the truthfulness of God himself. The truthfulness of God's word. The serpent undermines God. And, but he does so in this particular way. He does not embark on an exegetical discovery about how God is a liar and how it's irrational and indefensible to believe this about God and what God says. No, what does he simply do? He, some, he comes and sows um, and undermines God's word by using a mocking tone. Did God really say I mean, honestly, Adam and Eve, you can't have of a piece of fruit. 
You can almost hear the sarcastic and biting tone within the evil one. Did God really say, are you really going to fall for that? Come on, you're really going to be killed by eating fruit? It's a sneer. Who is God to think that he can restrict your life like that? The evil one is not questioning whether God said what he said. He is mocking what God said. He is sneering at God, and he's, he's, um, he's simply scoffing at the word of God. Ha! Who is he? The evil one not only lies about the word of God by twisting God's words, but he lies about God's word by treating the word of God as an object of ridicule. And this is primarily what you will find and how the world speaks about God's word and what he has said. Oh yes, you will find those who do come with their rational and intellectual arguments, trying to poke holes into the consistencies of scripture, and they deal with real issues and real problems. But for the vast majority of people, they look at us and they go, do you really believe that? Marriage between one man and one woman? You, are you Amish? Are you from Arkansas? Are you from the 19th century? What is wrong with you? It's the mocking and the scoffing. Ah, the truthfulness of God. Second, the servant lies about the goodness of God. He sows to dismantle the goodness of God. Satan doesn't simply go after the existence of God. He goes after the goodness of God. The serpent is essentially saying that God does not have your best interests at heart. Surely you won't die. God doesn't want you to have this because then you'll know about good and evil. And you'll be like him. Not only does he completely contradict what God says, but then he throws shade. He accuses God of evil motivations in verse 5. Satan says, this is a matter of jealousy. God just wants to keep you down. He likes to be in charge and he wants to keep you in eternal servitude. It's the man's fault. That's whose problem it is. God doesn't want you to be all that you can be. So, Evie, baby, come on. Come on. You're worth more than this. You cannot be constrained by this God who would abuse you in this way. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Well, it's interesting. Usually, intellectual atheism, what we see here, is not actually the primary problem. See, while belief in God has decreased by 10% over the last couple of years in our country, 80% of people still believe that there is a God out there. And yet most of the people you live, work with and live with, they, have, they don't care about God at all. And their biggest problem is this. They, they cannot believe, they question and struggle with the idea that there is a God who is good and his rules and his commands are for us. Most of them say yes to the idea of God, but no to the idea of believing that God has more, more good interest in my life than I have interest in my life. And now that lie resides at the heart of all of us, and it's the basis of so much of our sin. You believe that you're more committed to your happiness than God is committed to your joy. And if you obey God in the way that he calls you to obey him, you'll miss out on all kinds of happiness out there. The immoral don't trust the goodness of God. They believe that running from God and his laws is how you get a happy and fruitful life. But understand this, the religious don't trust the goodness of God either. 
Those that toe the line on so many of the God's B-side laws, they don't trust God's goodness. They believe that God and his goodness might give them, they don't believe it's free grace. So they believe, hey, I'm going to keep this law and this law, and I toe this line so that I might earn what I get. At the core of both of those things is neither of them is a belief in the goodness of God. So Satan seeks to undermine God by lying about the truthfulness, mocking God's word, and second, lying about the goodness of God. And then third, and this is the most significant, Satan lies about the authority of God. The authority of God. In all this, the serpent is seeking to sow distrust and to incite in Adam and Eve to believe the ultimate lie. And the big lie is this, that God has no right to tell us what to do. This connects to where we were began last week. What's the first big thing we see in creation? God is, and you are not God. And so he goes right after that core belief, the belief that God has no right. It is this attitude that looks at the authority of God and simply mocks it. This is ridiculous, the evil one says. This is your garden. I mean, you're the one who's tending it. You're the one who's laboring in it. What kind of God would put requirements upon you? Really? The evil one seeks to sow an atmosphere in which we are led to believe it is our prerogative to subject the commands of God to our evaluation rather than us be subjected to his evaluation of us. What the serpent was holding out was this. And eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this. You will be able to live a life on your own terms. Free from this God who would have responsibility and authority over you. He is saying, eat this and you will be completely autonomous. You will be free. You have independence and you can finally lean on your own understanding as you believe that you ought. There is a belief that we hold first before we act in our sin. There's a belief and an attitude towards God and his rules and his authority that is there and it precedes the act of sin itself. And the lie is that I have the right to decide what God says, whether it makes sense or not. I have the right to decide if I like God's rules or not. I have the right to decide whether I'm going to obey or not. The lie is this, I need to be God in my life. And that has not gone well for us. Because what we see, what happens next, this is, what we, this is how we can understand the, the gravity of eating a piece of fruit. Because this is where we see our act of rebellion. In verse 6, it says this, So then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. Fruit, huh? Fruit? Just as an aside, I know this has already been kind of heavy and it's only going to get heavier. So just as a, a break for all of us. I love what Garrison Keillor says about this. He says this about, about uh, where he, he said he could prove that Adam was a Lutheran. He said, who else but a Lutheran could be in a secluded garden with a naked woman and be tempted by a piece of fruit? <laughs> I thought about twisting it and just making it about Presbyterians, but that wasn't the quote. 
Listen, we, jo- we joke to cover over the thought that actually comes to our mind that we maybe whisper to ourselves as we read the Bible. As we whisper, we go, I mean, it's just a piece of fruit for crying out loud. I don't understand what the big deal is. Is the tree poisoned? If you bite into it, is it like Pandora's box where it squirts evil juice all over the world? What is wrong with this fruit? And here's the answer. Nothing. Nothing is wrong with the fruit. It is not a morally inherent command. There is not something morally inherently evil about the fruit. It's not like a command that says don't murder because, well, there's something morally evil inherently with murdering and taking the life of somebody else. Or, hey, don't eat the fruit because it has lots of carbs, and carbs are evil. That's not what he says. So what's left? If it's don't eat the fruit, period, without explanation, what's the God getting after here with this rule? Don't eat the fruit, and here's, here's the big thing, because I said so. Period, end of discussion. The point of the command is a test of their willingness to submit to the goodness of God. Don't eat the fruit because I am God and you are not. I don't want you obeying me because it's practical or exciting. I want you to obey me because I am your maker who is good and trustworthy and who is your authoritative Lord. So God is saying in essence, The fruit of the tree is significant not because of some magic or evil in the fruit itself, but because of the opportunity it offers us for loving, trusting obedience to our Lord. And so God is saying the essence of your relationship with me, Adam and Eve, has to be trust. Trust. That I have given you all these good things, that I am a trustworthy God, and will you you listen to my voice? Well, the evil one has lied to them about the truth of God and the goodness of God and the authority of God. And Adam and Eve, well, they bite into the lie and they swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And we know what happened. She took and ate and she gave it to her husband and he took and he ate. They were meant to listen to the voice of God and instead they listened to the voice of the evil one and they listened to the voice of their own desire. And ultimately, they enact the lie. They enact the lie that we need to be God, and they decide that we know better than God. They decide that they will function as a better God than God himself. Do you realize that virtually everything that is wrong with the world and in us and you and me is that we have chosen to take the place of God? That is the problem. Just simply think about your anxiety. Now, understand, I, I understand anxiety. There's so many complicated aspects to our anxiety in this world. If there are things that, that are truly difficult to handle, there are aspects of our fallenness and our wiring and our brain chemistry, but at the core of, its be, of what it is, anxiety is this. I know how to run the world, and I don't trust God that he knows what he's doing. And therefore, I have to try to cede back control of this world, and when you try to control the world, guess what, and you're juggling all of those plates and all of those balls, it gets really stressful really fast because you were not built to hold the fingers up, the world up by your fingers and by your hands. Every time we hold a grudge and hold bitterness, God says, vengeance is mine and justice is mine, but holding on to bitterness, we display that we believe the world would be much better if we were judge and not him. Because our judgment would come in our timing and come with vengeance as we see fit. Rebellion begins with a lie that we believe 
and divulges into an act that devastates us, an act of rebellion against God. And that's what it is. That's what the fall is. And that's what sin is. It is a cosmic act of rebellion. It is rejecting God. That's why it says in Romans chapter 1, no one loves God. And actually what we see in our sin is it is the act of our hatred of God, our rejection of him. We hate God. That is actually what sin says. I don't want you in my life, God. I want you gone, and I want you dead. And you know how we can know that we want God dead, and we want him gone? Because the one time that he came to earth, what did we do with him? We said, ah, here's our chance. And we put him on a cross. The fall tells us that there's an act of rebellion. And the fall tells us that because of that act of rebellion, everything has crumbled. You know, when you play Jenga or a, a game similar to that, you're pulling out the little pieces, and you finally get down to that one piece that it just holds everything else together and you pull that piece out and what happens? It's like shattering of glass. That's what the fall is. That you drop it on the floor. It doesn't just break into one, you know, two clean pieces. It shatters in all directions. And the account of the fall tells us that there is a brokenness because of the fall in in relationship. And that shatters in multiple directions. Let me just look at some of these. First, our relationship with the self is broken. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They realize they're naked. So they want to cover themselves. It's not because they were naked that they wanted to cover themselves. They had been naked before with no problem with it. Why do they have a problem with it now? Because now their guilt has spoken of something that is wrong with them. And when you realize that there is something wrong with you, where there's something ugly about who you are, something gross, that makes you feel this thing we call shame. Shame is not simply the feeling that you've done something wrong. It is the belief now that our guilt tells us and screams to us that there is something wrong about us and about who we are. That's what it is, to be uncomfortable with yourself, to be uncomfortable with your own skin. That is, we might say, to feel self-loathing and self-hatred. And we long to cover ourselves from who we really are because we hate who we now are. And so we hide ourselves and we cover up. And we create what therapists have now come to call, Christian therapists in particular have come to call the false self. This false version of who we are. A version of ourselves that, <laughs> that we can live with at least for a little bit. You ever, if you're caught in the room with yourself and you see how absolutely shameful you really are, you're like, I can't spend another minute with that person. And so we create something else, some other version of ourselves, so that we can get through the day with us. Here's what one teacher says. He says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist, because God does not know anything about The false self. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. In other words, we create something false 
that we can look at ourselves and can stand, but also it's something false that we create to stand before God. But creating a false version of yourself and seeking to cover over your own self-hatred and self-loathing, of course, does damage to your other relationships as well. And this is another way in which the fall broke us. Our relationships with everybody else broke. They sowed fig leaves. They're hiding from one another. They used to be naked and they are unashamed with one another. And now they are naked and they are very ashamed. We cannot bear to have people really know who we are. We have to control what other people see about us. So now they can, we can no longer be vulnerable with one another. We put masks on and we create distance and separation in our intimacy. Did you know this? Shame destroys intimacy in relationships. And so that is where we are now. And so what do we use as fig leaves? We use humor and we hide behind our intellectual superiority and we hide behind our money and behind comparison and work success and athletic success and even moral success. We hide behind being constantly busy, never having to acknowledge the gnawing sense of uselessness because we are busy doing something. But all those fig leaves just destroy our relationships. Work is your great fig leaf. Guess what it means? You're not ever home. Did you guys see that? I just had a bug fly right in my ear. <laughs> Flies are part of the fall. And so we create these fig leaves where it actually, all of our pursuit of trying to cover ourselves destroys the intimacy we long to have in our relationships. Instead of facing up and crying out to God, what, are the, what do Adam and Eve do? They point the finger and they blame. It's not me. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look here. God, I'm not the problem. It's her. It's him. And Genesis 4, at the very next scene, after, after Genesis chapter 3, what do we see happens in the fallout as relationships begin to shatter and break? What happens in Genesis chapter 4? One brother murders another brother. And the relational descent of history has been going on and snowballing ever since. But all of this compels in comparison to the most ultimate relationship that broke, and that is our relationship with God. In verse 8, we're told that God comes walking into the garden in the cool of the day. You understand how beautiful that is? It, what the, it harkens back to what they had in the garden before the fall. That the first thing in the cool of the day, that's the morning. The first thing that God desires to do in the day is spend time with his people. And so he shows up in the cool of the day. But what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. Instead of running to God for restoration, they hide from God. They know that what they have done and they are uncomfortable in his presence and so they hide themselves from him. They had enjoyed perfectly intimate bliss with God, their maker, and now he has become an object of terror to them, and for good reason. They are running from him and running to the hills. And this is the dynamic of the rest of the Old Testament. God says, if you want intimacy with me, don't do this. And we do that and rebel against him and we laud our, our power and our authority and we reject him and we run from him and we hide from him. This is what is going on. I would point to punctuate what's going on here in Genesis chapter two with this. 
It says this in Genesis 2, And the Lord God commanded the man and the woman, saying, Surely you, shall, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now it's interesting, we get to chapter 3, they eat of it, and they're not dead yet. So in what way did they die? What's died? Their relationship with God is what's died. God has expelled them, what we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3. God expels them from the garden. Ultimate death is separation from God. That's how we understand what hell is. They couldn't bear to look God in the face because they could see his holy wrath, his holiness, and his righteousness. And there, in the face of that, their shame and their grossness, the seditiousness of their rejection and rebellion smacks them in the face. And so we lost the face of God. That's what separateness from God is. To lose his, the face of his love and affection over us. You need one thing for life to thrive. The Jenga piece that keeps it all together is the vertical relationship we have with God. To see his face, to hear his benediction over us. This is what gives order in the world. This is what life is. What does it gain a man if he has the whole world and yet he has lost the face of God? This is the deepest longing of our hearts. And you see it in children. This is what we most long for, to have our parents' face. Dallas Willard tells the story of a little boy whose mother had died. And in missing his mother, he became very attached, though, to his father and such that he couldn't sleep at night ever outside of his father's bed. And he would crawl up in his dad's bed and get close to him. But it was never enough to be physically close to his father, such that whenever he realized in the bed that his father had turned his face away from him, the little boy would get up on his father, he would grab his face, and he would turn it towards him, and he would say, Daddy, I need your face, Daddy. I need your face. So in the midst of the darkness, he knew that he was safe. And God says, though, that we have broken our relationship with him. And so we have lost his face. And so God sends them out to live under a curse in a cursed world. That's what we see in the rest of Genesis chapter 3. For the sake of time, we can't even look at the curse this morning. But here's what we see. We see that all of creation broke with us. And our, even there's a fourth relationship. Our relationship with creation broke. Right, so that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's natural disasters and there's disorder and there's chaos. And here's the, the, the kicker, the fullest kicker is this, is that our bodies die. And death enters the world. If you want to see an interesting place, if you want to see what begins to happen is the created order begins to unravel. One of the most clear places to see this is actually in, later on in Genesis, or actually in Exodus when you see the plagues, that's what the plagues are in, in Egypt. They are the unraveling of creation. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3, it says what? The earth was formless and void, and there was darkness, and God's spirit hovered over it. And in creation, God brings order to the world and beauty and structure. And what do we see in the plagues is what begins to happen. It is the unraveling. So much so that it ends in darkness and ultimately the death of the firstborn son. All chaos ensues because of the fall. In other words, last week we saw that it's good, it's so very good, and the fall makes it so that it's bad. It's so very bad. It's gone terribly wrong and now everything is sad. And so is there any hope in the midst of such darkness? Is there even a glimmer, a shred of light in the darkness? The answer is yes. 
The account of the fall tells us that there is a glimmer of hope, and it's seen in verse 9. It's actually seen at least in three or four places in Genesis chapter 3, but I'll just give you one. Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 says this, But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? You know, in, Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 2, there's, it outlines our lostness and our deadness. And then it says this, but God. This is the Genesis chapter 3 version of but God. You're lost, you're falling, you're broken, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And God says, where are you? What is he doing? In the face of their sin, God is pursuing relationship. When Adam and Eve had expressed their hatred of God, the just God could have made the next verse, the last verse in the Bible. And then God said, let the world be gone. End of story, end of act two, no happy ending, no living forever and ever in bliss. Instead, God says, where are you? We hide, but God pursues He comes after his wayward children to make us his own. And this is why Jesus came. And when he comes, what does it say in John? He comes to seek and to save the lost. And before there is any trace or movement of us moving towards God, we are running from God in Adam and Eve. God steps into the garden and says, where are you, my people? Where are you, my children? Where is my bride and where is my creation And this is so lovely because it is God stepping into a garden and it is the beginning of a roadmap that will end in another garden. Another garden where we see Jesus crying out in another garden. The New Testament actually brings this incredible concept referring to Jesus as the second Adam. Our first Adam messed up. That's, That's to put it lightly. And we all fell in the first Adam. But the, sec- but the New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. Where Adam and Eve fall and all the world broke, Jesus came into the world, into the garden, and he did what Adam could not do. He comes to obey. And he obeys perfectly. The first Adam is given a beautiful garden. He's given everything you could want. It is paradise and it's wonderful. And God says to the first Adam, if you will not eat of the tree and drink of the fruit of one tree, then you will have eternal life and delight and joy with me. To the second Adam, though, he says, come into the garden, where you'll be deserted by friends, and foes will gather around you, and the second Adam will get on his knees, and God will say, go drink of the tree and eat of its bitter fruit, and if you do what I say, you will be crushed. And he did it anyways. God came to the first Adam and says, obey me in regards to the tree and you'll live. God came to the second Adam and says, obey me in regards to the tree and you will die. To the first Adam, alone in hiding, he comes to say, where are you? To the second Adam, alone in darkness, calling out to the Father, he gets silence. The first Adam didn't believe in the goodness of God. The second Adam comes to show us on a tree that once and for all of the goodness of God The first Adam longed for the place of God, to usurp God's authority. The second Adam, Joel read it to end our service last night, it says in Philippians 2, he came and he made himself nothing and took the place of a bondservant and became obedient to the point of death. Such a George Herbert in his poem said this, this is the voice of Christ, all who pass by behold and see men stole the fruit, so I must climb the tree. The tree of life for all, but only me. Was there a grief like mine?
a tree of life, a tree of life we get because he got the tree of death. And in this perfect second Adam, the son of God, the son of God is the living voice of God crying out to us because you live in a fallen world. You live in a fallen world. And it is driving your world crazy. It is the chaos that you experience deep down. It is the chaos you see around you. And into that world where the world has shattered, he comes in as God's word that says this, where are you? Where are you? Do you see that even as the darkness falls and as the world shatters in Genesis 3, there is, even in that moment, this strange and arising light, a glimmer in the dark who cuts into the horizon of history so that all might hear the voice of God say, Oh, my people, where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. I pray, Lord, for those in this room who look at their life and they do see chaos, that they have been the God and Lord of their lives and it has led to nothing good. And they've been rejecting your voice and your call. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that they would heed the voice of God as he comes into the fallen garden of their life and cries to them, where are you? Come home. Come home. And that they would see in Jesus Christ that there is a way home. And that they would see in Jesus Christ that there is a God, the God who beckons them is good. That his words over them are true. And that his authority and his kingship is what is best for their life. So I pray that where any of us in this room, maybe we've heeded that voice in the past, and yet we acknowledge that there are places in which we are ignoring it because we like our way. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to repentance. And lead us back home to you, where we can celebrate and live in the joy of living under the true authority of our good king. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.